Welcome back to 8079, Year of Vesuvius, episode 29, Titus in Mycenaeum. Last time we discussed the doings-on at Herculaneum and the doings of the family of the Noni Baldi, continuing our proposed counterclockwise trip around the bay, we reached the port of Mycenaeum on the long, thin, flat peninsula ending with the high, rocky hill suitable for a lighthouse. This place was named for Mycenaeus, hero of the Trojan War, one of the special band of brothers surrounding Hector. When Hector died, Mycenaeus moved his allegiance to Aeneas. A good move, since Aeneas was one of few who managed to escape the burning city in one piece and sail off to a new life chapter that did not involve slavery to the Greeks. Mycenaeus acted as steersman on Aeneas's escape craft, and together they would see what fate the gods had for the former Trojans. Besides boat steering, Mycenaeus was a dab hand at conch shell blowing. No mean talent, and something to be proud of. Mycenaeus, alas, overdid the pride thing. You would think that defeat in war, and after such a sneaky trick as the Trojan horse, the man would have been modest about his conch-blowing abilities, or at least reflective on the vagaries of fortune. Not a bit of it. On the contrary, he became arrogant, going so far as to challenge the sea god Triton himself just to show who was the best of the best, conch-shell-blowing-wise. The challenge did not go down well, whether because he was an arrogant puppy just for asking, or because Triton figured that he, Triton, might lose, or because Triton had anger issues. Whatever he was thinking, by his actions we remember him, and his reaction was to grab the puffed-up Mycenaeus and drag him down beneath the waves until dead, then let the body wash ashore. The Trojans mourned, but what can one do? Standing up to the gods is never a good idea. Drowning is bad, as fates go, but things could have been worse. Marcius, master of the panpipe, won his self-promoted battle of the pipes against Apollo, and was flayed alive for his trouble. People will not learn. Mycenaeus may have thought that he was a special snowflake because his father was Aeolus, lord of the winds, whose bag of westward-blowing winds given to Odysseus kept Team Odysseus from reaching Ithaca in their extended search for closure. You would think that Aeolus would have been a bit frosty towards Odysseus, given that the wind god's son was on Team Hector, but it seems not. Ironically, Odysseus also had a companion named Mycenaeus. You must wonder if the two Mycenaeuses ever met. As to the peninsula... More recently, Mark Anthony had a villa here, a legacy from his grandfather, which he mortgaged to pay off some debts. We know this because Cicero mocks the fellow for his financial imprudence. Hortensius, champion orator in the age of Cicero, also had a villa on this strip of land, later owned by Anthony's great-granddaughter, Agrippina the Younger. Now's as good a time as any to retell the story of Agrippina's grim end, engineered by bad son Nero at nearby Baiae. Baiae, the Abitha of its day, all sun-drenched beautiful people of money, if not taste. They exist in every age, not just our own, and where would we be without them? They enjoy vapid lives, 
Others can indulge in envy and contempt, two sides of the same coin equally satisfying. Or dissatisfying. Uh, but I digress. Our story begins with a man called Anacetus, who had once been Nero's tutor before Nero's mother Agrippina brought in the classier Seneca. Anaceto was not best pleased with losing that sinecure and held it against Agrippina. Agrippina may not have liked him much, but Nero recalled him fondly as an undemanding teacher who let him get away with murder. Well, mischief and laziness, mostly. Nero was just a boy at the time. And so, as the years passed and Nero became emperor and disconnected himself from his mother's control, this old fellow returned to the Neronian fold. For no obvious reason, he had no real background in the military, much less in naval affairs, and Acetus found himself commander of the Mycenaean fleet. And when, in March of AD 59, Nero was grousing yet again about having to suffer his meddlesome mother, Anacetus it was who came up with the Baroque plan for getting rid of her once and for all. The plan involved a seaworthy vessel, specially crafted by the boatwrights of the region, decked out to look fit for an emperor's mother. Agrippina had a summer joint on the peninsula. Nero should invite her to dine with him, put past bygones into the past, and look forward to a nice future together. Invitations were sent, accepted, the boat arrived at Bailly, they had dinner, and now that it was after sundown, Agrippina was prepared to return to her own villa. She should go in the new bark fit for the mother of an emperor. She could. She did. About halfway across the water, on the order of an underling who was in on the plot, some part of the boat was pulled and the vessel split in half, beginning to sink. A beam was supposed to have come down and brained her, but she was lying on a couch in such a way that the beam was arrested. Men from the front of the boat were in on the scheme and in the darkness tried to finish the job. By now, the women were in the water, Agrippina and her maidservant. The maidservant shouted out that she was Agrippina and she should be saved. She was instead targeted for a killing blow or two and sank beneath the waves, while the real Agrippina... A strong swimmer, who, like Catherine Hepburn, made a point of daily swimming, was able to glide away back home to her place. Whether the maid was trying to save her own skin or Agrippina's, we do not know. In any event, word got back soon enough that the plot had failed, Nero fell into a panic, and Anacetus, responsible for the cock-up, now volunteered to finish the thing off. He went to her villain person, found her with her retinue, and with mout much ado, stabbed her to death. The story went out that she had been plotting treason, which made the matricidal thing okay. Of course, no one believed it, but the affair was over, and there was no particular benefit in disbelieving it. So the fiction was allowed to pass for truth, and Rome got another ten years of Nero as its ruler. As to Anicetus, Having seen to the death of Agrippina, he volunteered to swear he had committed adultery with Nero's unloved wife, Claudia Octavia. She was banished to a small island, ordered to commit suicide, balked, was tied up, her veins cut to simulate self-murder, and when that proved ineffective, forced into a steam room to hurry the process along. 
Eventually her head was removed and brought back to Rome as proof of execution. She was twenty-two years old. Anicetus was also banished, due Sardinia in his case, with a nice bonus. He enjoyed a peaceful existence until a natural death in old age. Pliny, happy to report, was not party to anything of this nature. He was, however, in AD 79, sitting in Anicetus's old command as admiral of the Western Roman fleet, 50 warships, 10,000 men, or so it is said. Truth be told, admiral was not that prestigious a title relative to army commander. The navy was second fiddle to the army, a necessary but slightly un-Roman kind of service, the sort of thing Greeks would excel at. Nearly a century and a half had passed since Pompey the Great had rid the Sea of Pirates, nearly two hundred years since Rome had defeated the Carthaginian fleet at Aegates. There had been that unpleasantness at Actium in 32 BC that secured Augustus to his place on top as opposed to Mark Anthony, but other than that, not a lot for the Navy to do war-wise. So what was the role for the Navy these days? Swift communications between Rome and the Mediterranean-facing provinces and beyond, for starters. Demonstrating resolve to any who might think to invade this magnificent and rich bit of maritime real estate. Not that there is much danger of that, but in times of peace, prepare for war, never let your guard down. The Navy might also keep an eye on the grain fleet, which would land at Puteole in the Bay of Naples seeking out and hammering anyone who thought that piracy could be a viable career path. The sailors engaged in constant drilling force to keep them fit, able, and out of trouble. Synchronized rowing on that scale is not impossible, but you want your commanders and crew members to be ready in case of emergency. In due course, many would be seconded to Rome, where their skills with ropes and sails would be used to man the huge canvas awning that shaded the audience in the Colosseum. And so the role of commander of the fleet was arguably something of a sinecure, a reward for long service to the Empire, which Pliny had certainly put in. Cavalry officer in Germany, where he had been a tentmate of Titus. He also saw service with the Roman naval forces in the German lowlands, which may have played a part in getting him his current assignment. He stayed out of politics under Nero for whatever reason. He engaged in law work, as one did, and, most memorably, in recording the oddities in the natural world for his masterwork, The Monumental and Natural History, still in print today, chock-full, as we have seen, of fascinating fact and beguiling misinformation. Presumably through Titus, he came to the attention of Vespasian and became a good friend procurator of Spain, Gaul, and North Africa, after the year of four emperors, a frequent guest of the emperor, informal from the sound of it, friendship with a touch of business, and we can imagine that by eighty seventy-six or so, Vespasian felt that Mycenaeum would be soft duty in a pleasant setting for the fellow. Compare it to, say, naval service in Bermuda, or Singapore, or Gibraltar, or Honolulu. Not in the least undeserved, it should be said. And it wasn't just the scenery. The geographer Strabo, writing at the time of Augustus, reports that the Greek mode of life in Neapolis finds special favor with the men who make their living educating the young 
and who withdraw there from Rome for the sake of peace and quiet, or else with still others who, on account of their old age and infirmity, long to live without effort. And some of the Romans, too, delighting in this way of life and observing the great numbers of men, cultured like themselves, residing there, happily frequent the city and take up permanent residence. Pliny, by this time, was suffering the maladies of obsessive academics and habitual couch potatoes, that of cisflesh, overweight and under-exercised. One can hardly be surprised. The food and the wine of the immediate area was of the best, and Pliny was comfortable enough to afford it if he so chose. It appears that he did so choose. For all that, he did not lack energy, and perhaps a sense of the limits of time. He was just over fifty when he got his new commission, no great age even back then, but people who hit life's midpoint frequently start to think about what is left to be done and how much time will be allotted to them to do it. There's a story of a dinner party Pliny held in which the poet was reciting for the guests. The poet flubbed a word and was quickly corrected by one of the more panicky audiences. Pliny asked the critic if he had understood what the poet had been getting at. He had. Well, in that case, why interrupt the fellow and waste everyone's time? And that, take note, while he was theoretically off the clock. While on duty, self-imposed, Pliny arranged a system to keep both his curiosity fed and output unimpeded. When carried here and there in a palanquin, a walking was not his thing, which probably had something to do with his weight, he had two secretaries on either side, one reading to him from some obscure text, the other taking dictation as Pliny transformed raw data into a form he found more pleasing. News of his old friend Vespasian's death reached him as it had the rest of the empire. Given the closeness of the two men, to say nothing of the dedication of the natural history to son Titus, it is hard to imagine that Titus would not have made an appearance. A discussion of old times, sympathy for the now-dead Vespasian, a request for advice on governance going forward, easy enough to imagine what sort of conversation the two would have had. Perhaps the admiral introduced Titus to his nephew, also named Pliny, and Pliny's mother, down at the residence for the summer. Speculation here. We know that the two were there at the time of the eruption. We simply do not know when they first arrived. A promising young man, young Pliny, the sort that Rome could use once he came of age. Studious, sober, a bit pompous, took an interest in the written word, if not quite to the level of dedication as his uncle, but he was yet young, time enough for that. So much for the tour of the bay. Next time, a new day, a new month, still warm. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>